and the reason we can rejoice. I hope that you'll take your Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As we look at verses 20 through 28. Some of you may have read my tidings article this week. A meager showing, but at least a few of you read it. And you know if you read it that, you know, this is one of the most favorite times of the year for me. This season that we're in, Thanksgiving and then, of course, uh, Christmas as we come to celebrate. And certainly as we think about this week in particular, Thanksgiving, it's one of those times that we have when we can kind of draw back. Some of us are off a little more than we usually are and we're able to gather around with different people and perhaps our family and perhaps our friends and you know, for me, it's one of those moments uh, of being able to look forward to go back to North Mississippi for a few days, uh, leaving Tuesday, looks like now, and we're going to go up, and uh, it'll be the first time that I've been there since uh, July of 2013. Mama ain't been happy. I know that's not good English, but I'm just telling you like it is. And we're going to go up and we're going to spend that time and we're going to see uh, our family and some of our high school uh, friends and visit with them. And, you know, one of the things I enjoy is just the relationships and, and being able to eat. I know you have an appreciation for eating just like I do and being able to sit down at mama's table and uh, eating some peas and turnip greens. I thought I'd hear some amen somewhere along this way. Being able to uh, eat some lemon ice box pie and coconut cake. Being able just to enjoy life. You know, it's awesome. And we stop and we give thanks. And we should, for those things, for those, even those small things that we think about, we should give thanks. We should demonstrate our gratitude. Arguably, the first Thanksgiving was held in 1621. The year prior... This group of passengers got on a ship called the Mayflower. And they set sail for a new world, looking for a place to practice their religion freely, looking for new opportunities. They came across that ocean, and as after three months or so, kind of wandering around, they found themselves in a place that would be called Plymouth, Plymouth, Massachusetts. And there they were. <laughs> And they had come upon the New England winter, and it was a tough time for them. As a matter of fact, according to historical accounts, they stayed upon that ship most of the time. And those 102 passengers faced all kinds of challenges, from exposure to scurvy to contagious disease. As the winter ended, approximately half of them remained. In March of 1621, they went out from the ship. They began to look around, and they ran in to these Native Americans. And it was just by God's sovereignty, I believe, that they ran into this man named Squanto. You'll remember that from class? Who came from the Pawtuxet Band of the Wampanoag Indians. You didn't know I knew that, did you? And again, in God's sovereignty, he had been taken as a slave to England. He had learned English. He had returned. And he was able to speak to these new settlers. 
And he taught them, along with the other Native Americans, he taught them how to grow corn and survive in that area. And in November of 1621, Governor William Bradford brought together his settlers. And he declared three days of feasting, three days of celebration, because they had experienced the corn harvest. They had experienced the grace of God. And you know, through the years, many of the colonies, many of the states celebrated this time of Thanksgiving until it was brought under federal, really a federal holiday during the time of Abraham Lincoln. And since then, our nation has looked at those moments of Thanksgiving. And it was certainly born out of the 1621 experience. Now think of it a moment. All those many years ago, there was the Thanksgiving for the harvest one of the reasons this date has been set in November. And for us today, even though most of us probably do not celebrate an agricultural harvest, we know what a harvest is in our lives. It could be an economic harvest. It, it could be just the livelihood that we experience. But we know that God has been good to us. Oh, as we remember. There were those days of seminary, those days of college, when I looked at the world and I thought to myself, how in the world will certain things be accomplished? How in the world will he place his provision upon our lives? And yet, even as I remember today, I've seen that great harvest that he has continued to provide. And for us today, as we come in this place, we recognize the harvest. And I want to say to you today that we ought to give thanksgiving. We ought to be grateful for the harvest that he has provided. And certainly, we ought to look forward to the harvest that is to come. I want you to see in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, what he speaks about this harvest that is to come. He says, Paul does, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. Afterward, those who are Christ at his coming. Now notice what Paul says as he speaks about a harvest that is to come. He speaks about Christ who is the first fruits. Literally, though, that is a singular word, meaning the first fruit. Now, those of you who are biblical scholars, you can go back to the Old Testament, and you understand the very idea of the first fruits, the, the offering that worshipers would bring to God. Literally, it was the first portion, the best of what they had from the harvest. Now, it went something like this. They would grow their crops, agrarian society that they were. They would grow their crops. They would make uh, a harvest, and they would take from that very first fruit that they had, and they would bring it to God. It was an act of faith, in a sense. It was an act of saying, God, we're giving you the first and the best we have because we believe that you are going to bring more crops. You're going to bring an even greater 
harvest. See, that was the idea of offering and the idea of faith that you found behind this first fruits. Kind of like us, when we come and we give of our first, our, our, our first of our income, the first of our lives, what do we say? We say, God, now we're giving this to you, but we believe that you're going to provide everything else that is necessary after this. We don't believe that you are a stingy God in the sense of giving us just these crops. We believe that you're going to continue to bless us and work in our lives. If we give this to you, you're going to make sure that you are providing for us and our families. That is our belief. So here, Paul takes that concept of first fruit and he applies it to Christ. If there is a first fruit, that means at some point there will be a greater harvest. In other words, if you have the first of the crops that are presented, you believe at some point in some time, God's going to bring a greater harvest. Agreed? It's going a lot better if you would amen me every now and then. I'm trying to get ready for tonight and Zion Traveler, so help me out, please. Just a little. If there's a first fruit, then that means that there will be a greater harvest. And here he says, Christ is the first fruit. And notice, when he speaks about the harvest, he is speaking about a harvest that involves resurrection. Now, 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection. Some of you would probably say, why in the world would you talk about the resurrection on the Sunday before Thanksgiving? Well, remember we did 1 Corinthians 14 last week, right? So now we're on 15. But you, you can skip. Can, no, I cannot skip. I am kind of one of those guys that I just can't skip. But when I looked at this and read it, I recognized that there was a sense of harvest that was found in this 15th chapter. And that harvest involved resurrection. And Christ, being the first fruit, risen from the dead, the reality of it, sets the foundation of a greater harvest that God is going to bring. A harvest that involves resurrection. See, earlier in this chapter, Paul had been giving the what-ifs. What if there were no resurrection? Then our preaching would be in vain. Then our life, this life would be most pitiful, he says, if we live without hope, without the hope of the resurrection. But in verse 20, he says, but now Christ is risen from the dead. That is the reality of it. He says, I've been giving you all these hypotheticals, but I want you to know the reality of it is Christ is risen from the dead, and he is the first fruit. He is the first crop, and after all of this, there will be a greater harvest. It is an eternal harvest it is a resurrection harvest he says for since by man came death by man also came the resurrection of the dead for as in adam all die even so in christ all shall be made alive he will take this concept of the old adam and the new adam and he will use it to demonstrate the difference between death and life Later on in the chapter, he'll, he'll really emphasize this relationship more. But basically, he said, through Adam, through Adam, 
came dead. Certainly, Adam sinned. The wages of sin is death. Because of Adam and because of the nature we have inherited, we experience sin and, unfortunately, in this fallen world that we live in, death. And yet, we have a hope of an eternal harvest one day. Because, yes, we have inherited the nature of of Adam. Yes, death comes. But because of God's grace and because of the power of Jesus Christ, because of the resurrection itself, we can enter into life. And we can experience the power of the resurrection ourselves. How we should be thankful for that. This day to know that we live in eternal, in eternal life through Jesus Christ. You see, I, I'm, I'm grateful. I am thankful for all of the tangible blessings that I see. I am thankful for the relationships. I am thankful for the things that God has provided. I recognize, as I've said, every good gift comes from above. But may I say to you, what I am most thankful for is the salvation, the eternal life, the forgiveness that has been given to me by Jesus Christ. You and I never deserved any of the blessing, but God in his grace and in his mercy has demonstrated his blessing, his spiritual blessing and life to us you see through adam i was dead but through jesus christ i'm alive and one day what what it says is that we those of us who are in him will experience the resurrection itself we will live it says those who are falling asleep now don't get the wrong idea there don't somehow assume because Paul uses that type of language that those who have gone on before us are just asleep. That's not the case. Here Paul uses an euphemism. Kind of like us. A lot of times we don't speak about people dying. We we speak about people passing away, right? Here he talks about those who sleep. They They are not literally asleep he's talking about those who have died and those who have died they're enjoying life more than we could ever know i love what d.l moody used to say that if you read my obituary in the paper just know that i'm more alive that day than i had been any other days in my life when you look in revelation and you see the picture of heaven it's anything but people sleeping you have the active worship of God taking place. But what he says is that one day, even their bodies will be resurrected. There will be a harvest. Because if Christ was the first fruit, then he set this all in motion. He set what was going to happen in motion. He had demonstrated his power over death, hell, and the grave. And one day, because of that, there will be a harvest in which those who are in him will be resurrected 
for all eternity, given glorified bodies through the power of Christ. I am thankful for that this season. I do recognize that the holiday season is especially tough for those families who have lost loved ones. I've mentioned all the good things about going home and enjoying a feast and Oh, yeah, didn't mention this, but getting in the woods a little bit. I've, been, I've spoken about the good things, but I also recognize that there are people going through these holidays that are experiencing still sadness and sorrow. For you, for me, listen, we should draw comfort in knowing that there will be a harvest and we ought to demonstrate our gratitude and thanksgiving that one day there will be a harvest of those who have fallen asleep. And notice it says, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. In Christ, one of Paul's favorite terms and phrases. Those who have found themselves in him and in his life, they, he said, they will be made alive. I was looking at the scripture last night, reading through these very verses, when I received a phone call from a, a dear friend of mine in Zachary, who called not only to let me know that one of the ladies that was very dear to me passed away. But to ask me to be a part of the funeral service this week to preach the message. This was one of those ladies that you've seen in our Southern Baptist churches over, those, over these years. She was always faithful. She was always there teaching in the Sunday school class. I think she taught some 50 years in children's Sunday school. She was involved in the WMU, WMU lady. You know what I'm talking about there. She was on the Sunday school board. She went through all kinds of different activities through her faithfulness to her church and Southern Baptist life. said I was reading these passages and I received that message last night and I said to myself thanks be to God that there's a harvest thanks be to God that Christ is the first fruit and that there will be a day of great resurrection for all who are in him, for all who have loved him, for all who have demonstrated their faith in Christ. And I say to you, wherever you are and whatever you face this holiday season, please know that you can give thanksgiving for the harvest that is to come. It is eternal and it is extensive in all who have trusted him. But I want you to see this as well. Not only does this harvest involve resurrection, it involves rain, the rain of Christ 
himself and the reign of God. Uh, Look, if you will, in verse 24, it says, then comes the end. Well, literally, it says, then the end. I mean, it's, it's, that, it's that abrupt. It's, it's like Paul is saying, and then, in that decisive moment, the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father. When he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put, on, put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who puts all things under him. That God may be all in all. He basically says that there is coming a time in this harvest where not only there will be that sense of resurrection, but there will be that sense of rule. The rule of God. The rule of Christ. Now, don't misunderstand me that one day he will rule. That is, that is not accurate in and out of itself. I should say to you that he has always ruled and he continues to rule and he will rule one day. I want you to see verse 25. He said, for he must reign till. I like that little word. He must reign till. That means he reigns now. He must continue to reign now until that day. I am thankful we have a God who is reigning and who is ruling over the Affairs of men now. If you were here Sun, oh, Wednesday night, I spoke just briefly about it. About how there are days when I look at this world and, and it seems that this world continues to descend into chaos. Probably one of the best things I could do this Thanksgiving week is turn off Fox News and CNN. Because the more I watch it, the more aggravated I become, the more despondent sometimes I become, because I see all of these things that are going on in the world. And you see how disease and death you see how hostilities continue throughout our world. And yet I am reminded that he continues to reign. And that gives me strength and that gives me power. Because listen, if he reigns and his authority is true, then that means that I can speak and preach with authority. That means I can live with a sense of authority. That means I can pray with a sense of authority. Because he reigns. He says he must reign until or till he has put all enemies under his feet. What does this mean? Yes, he has always reigned. And yes, 
he continues to reign today. But one day, that reign will be consummated. One day, all of these things that we are seeing and all of these things that we are facing, they will be ultimately discarded because they have been defeated by Christ Jesus. You see, when Christ died on the cross, he paid for our sins. When Christ was resurrected, he demonstrated his power over sin and demonstrated that he had the power to forgive sins. He demonstrated the authority that he had over death, life, the grave itself. And because of that, one day he will bring all of these things to an end. Verse 26, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. It'll be destroyed. How awesome of a day that will be when death itself no more calls as I had last night no more moments of grieving with family members. No more experiencing death and its consequences in our lives. The rule and the reign of Christ will be consummated. It will be demonstrated by the ultimate defeat of death. The way Paul says it later on in this chapter. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, but the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. Did you get that? He, he just kind of entered into his own personal moment of thanksgiving. He just entered into his own personal moment of celebration. He said, I didn't have to have the congregation here while I'm writing this. He said, there's something, as I think about it, of death being destroyed that drives me to thanksgiving. And he says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, when that harvest comes... There will be great victory because the reign of Christ will be consummated and death will be destroyed. The eternal nature of that reign and the extensive work. Verse 27, he had said, as he quoted Psalm 8, he quoted it in these messianic terms. He says, he has put all things under his Feet. All things. In verse 24, he said, He puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. The extensive reign over all things, over death, the last enemy, over every authority, over every power, all things are placed. Now, I was reading through this and uh, went back and looked at some of the original language and I noticed how so many of these verbs, especially as they relate to putting these things under his feet or subjecting these things to himself, that all of these verbs, so many of them, are in what is called the aorist tense. It means 
that it is a decisive, pointed action. Now, you don't care about that, I see. But I got kind of fired up about it. Because, you see, when you read the Greek verbs, they're not just about They're not just about time. It's not just about tense. But it's about the kind of action that will take place when you read a Greek verb. And when I read that and I saw this, to think that that moment of subjecting these other things to himself, of putting these things under his feet, that it is a decisive, determined act. It will happen decisively. There will be no debate. There, there will be no moments of coming and saying, well, can we talk about you taking over part of this kingdom and I'll take over the other? There will be none of that. He will rule with all authority. He would defeat all enemies. Folks, if you can't become grateful and thankful for that, in a world that seems to have embraced chaos and evil, to know that all of those things will be put away with and that when the harvest comes, he will reign ultimately. If you can't be thankful for that, then you need the Holy Spirit to bring a new sensitivity to your heart and to your life. Because I long for that. Even as John the Revelator prayed, there are days I pray, even so, come Lord Jesus. Because at that moment, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That he had the power, that he had the strength to subdue all things and place them under his authority. Notice it says at the end of verse 28, that God may be all in all. One of the other observations I made as I looked through that original language, even through the English translation here, is that you see this emphasis upon that little word, all. Did you catch that as we read through it? He had said back in verse 22, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Later on in verse 24, he said he puts an end to all rule and all authority. Verse 27, he said he has put all things under his feet. All things are put under him. And you continue, notice that little word, all. When you see such repetition in the scripture, You've got to note that the Holy Spirit speaking through the apostle is emphasizing something. It is so that God may be all in all. Get this. All who are in Christ, all believers are resurrected. All enemies are defeated. So that God may be all in all. What a great harvest day that would be. All who are in Christ, resurrected. All 
enemies defeated. And God sitting upon his throne to be all in all of our lives. And that's the challenge even for us to live today. That we would live with such grateful, thankful hearts. That he would be our all in all now. I admit, you probably could confess, there are days when he's half of our all, if that's a word or a phrase. He's just half of who we are. But what God wants to be is our all in all. And one day, thankfully, there will not be distraction. There will not be other issues. There will not be evil. There will not be those things that are trying to bring us back. But rather, once our hearts are purified, all in all. He says that is the purpose. And that is the plan. And my friends, my brothers, my sisters, this harvest gives us reason for thanksgiving. May we demonstrate that spirit of gratitude in our hearts and in our lives. Now and this week, as we, re as we recognize him as our all in all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can live today with a sense of life and a sense of hope. Lord, our hearts are overflowing this morning as a congregation and as a people. Because we recognize the tremendous blessing of salvation and service you've granted. God, even as we look forward to the future, we thank you that you have secured it in your victorious son, the Lord Jesus. And that one day, as we gather around that table that you prepared, one day, all who are in Christ even those who have gone on before us, all who are in Christ, will celebrate a great banquet. Thank you for the promise that one day you will defeat, ultimately bring to consummation your kingdom. Father, we pray that today as we bow before you, we bow with that sense of gratitude. Lord, for that one which is lost that needs to be saved, that needs to be in Christ, Lord, give them that spirit to come this morning, confess you, confess your son, and enter into this moment of life and moment of hope. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?